Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. I am very excited about this episode. Hi, Miriam, and happy Pride Month to our listeners. We have a really amazing guest today, Mimi LeMay, a Jewish mom in Greater Boston who has, through her own experience, become a recognized leader fighting for the rights of LGBTQ children and their families. Mimi and her husband, Joe, have three young children. Their middle child, who they refer to using the pseudonym M, consistently expressed to his parents, teachers, and classmates that he was really a boy. He insisted that they were wrong about his assigned gender. By the age of three, he was showing signs of unhappiness and anxiety. Mimi and Joe came to understand that their child was transgender. In 2015, Mimi published the essay, A Letter to My Son Jacob on His Fifth Birthday, which went viral. In the years since, Mimi, Joe, and their children have become international advocates for transgender and non-binary youth. They are members of the Parents for Transgender Equality National Council at Human Rights Campaign. Mimi is also the author of What We Will Become, A Mother, A Son, and A Journey of Transformation. In this deeply moving book, she weaves together her memories of growing up in and leaving her ultra-Orthodox Jewish community with her parenting journey. We are so thrilled to welcome Mimi to the Vibe of the Tribe today. Mimi, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Miriam and Dan. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, thank you. You know, uh, I've been reading so much about you. You are an international advocate for transgender youth, a member of the Human Rights Campaign's Parents for Transgender Equality National Council, and the author of the incredibly moving and compelling What We Will Become, A Mother, A Son, and A Journey of Transformation. And last year, you were named one of the Commonwealth Heroines of 2020 by the Massachusetts Commission on the Status of Women. But many people first became aware of your incredible story and your family in 2015 when you published an essay on Boston.com that went viral, a letter to my son Jacob on his fifth birthday. How have things changed in the six years since then for you and your family? Thank you for that introduction, Dan. It's been a remarkable journey for us, and there has been a lot of change. I think when we first started advocating, for me, there was this sense of uh, a little bit of naivete that I would explain to people that gender identity is something that's formed very young in, in an individual. Professional medical associations and the literature talks about between two to four years old is when most people start to form their gender identity. And that was something that wasn't widely understood at the time. So my letter to Jacob was an effort to educate, explain, to talk about something positive related to transgender youth, because there had been some pretty tragic events shortly after Jacob's transition. A young woman had taken her own life because she felt hopeless. Her parents had not understood her gender identity, had taken her to what is called conversion therapy to try to shame and coerce 
her to change her gender identity, which really does cannot happen. I mean, it's in her, it's in her mind. It's, it's in her brain. It is who she is. And this, this piece of news about Leela Alcorn's death had made national news. And this was one of the first times that I recall seeing a national discussion about transgender youth. And there was so much lack of understanding about what it meant to be transgender and that young people could be transgender and that they needed to be supported at a young age, that I felt we had a story that we were sitting on, a positive one about a little boy who had been given the opportunity to transition at the age of four and was thriving and happy and engaged and everything that Leela did not have the chance to be, very sadly. And so we felt compelled to share that story. But I had never been a blogger. I wasn't a professional writer, advocate of any kind. And so I assumed that I would explain who my son was and that people would see the genuineness in my words and that would there would be other parents who joined in and, and there were. And that this discussion would be briefer than it is. But here we are in 2021, and we're still fighting for understanding, for rights for transgender children, for the, their ability to transition and to have affirmative care. Despite all the evidence, despite all the science, despite the medical community on our side, despite behavioral health community on our side, and developmental experts, we're still fighting. So that's been, that has been an unexpected part of this journey. Back in 2015, when I wrote the letter, we did have a wonderful support. We, there was a community that welcomed us in, other parents like us, advocates. Uh, we ended up fighting for the public accommodations law in Massachusetts and, and met so many wonderful advocates and people and uh, public servants along this way, this journey. We did feel a great sense of hope at the time that this uh, particular fight would be brief briefer perhaps than the fight for LGBTQ rights in general. But with the 2016 election and the quick reversal of some of the progress that had been made for transgender youth in schools with a supportive directive from the Obama administration, we realized that we were in for a much tougher fight. Unfortunately, I have seen transgender people being dragged into a political fight that they should never have had to participate in for their rights for validation, for ability to exist without harassment and discrimination. The fact that this became um, kind of a bellwether or a, a test for conservatism, that you don't support transgender people or you support laws that curtail their rights, has been a tragedy. It didn't need to be that way. Human rights can be appreciated no matter what side of the aisle you're on. I believe that firmly. And it has been a tragedy to see transgender people being dragged into the spotlight in this way and, and vilified in many ways by conservative media. And so that's been a really sad part of our journey. But personally, in our lives, being advocates, being public has brought a lot of rewards for our kids because they feel they have a voice. And when I say our kids, I'm also referring to Jacob's older sibling who last year came out to us as non-binary, which means that they don't feel that the gender binary of either male or female quite fits them. And so this is their own journey and they're using they, them pronouns. I think Merriam-Webster has declared they, them as a use in singular as the word of the year for 2020, which I really appreciated. 
And they're on their own path and doing well as well. So in the book, I refer to them by their former name. But now that several years have passed since the publishing of the book, they are they're Eli. So Eli and Jacob are both I think, empowered by the work we do. They feel that they can be supportive of other young people. And they wish to participate more and more in this kind of advocacy that we do, which has just been a beautiful thing to see and, and quite exciting. Because I one thing we want for all our kids, no matter who they are, is that they feel they have a voice. I, I want to go a little bit deeper into what you said about Jacob's advocacy. He's been an advocate since he was five. And there was this really wonderful interview I watched with Keshet, a Jewish LGBTQ organization here in the greater Boston area. And in that interview, Jacob said he was happy to share his story because he knows he has saved lives. And I got absolute chills at that moment. Anyone who knows, as you mentioned before, about violence that trans people experience, the awful statistics of self-harm or, or attempted trying to end their lives. Anyone can see that this is really an issue of pikuach nefesh, which in Judaism is saving lives. And if you want to look it up, anyone out there, go check out Tractate Sanhedrin. Judaism teaches that whoever saves a life, it is considered as if he saved an entire world. So Jacob's existence as his true authentic self is clearly such a beacon of light. And you can see how proud he is of having this impact. Has Jacob heard from other trans kids about how his story has maybe affected their lives? He has. And I try to share with him when parents reach out to me as well and say, I didn't understand my kid. And now I know that what they're experiencing is normal and I need to be there for them. And he's met uh, a lot of transgender youth conferences we go to uh, through HRC and, and Human Rights Campaign and other organizations. And I think he's really proud of being able to be there for kids. He has several trans friends because trans kids are everywhere and is able to experience something with them while also mainly just being a kid, which is ultimately what I hope that when people begin to understand the trans youth are normal, they're here to stay, they need to be supported. I hope it becomes a non-issue and that they can all just go about and have ordinary childhoods in, in every sense. But he does feel a special connection to the trans youth that he meets on this journey. He has, there are several that through their parents, they've reached out to me and asked to connect him with their children. And they continue to share experiences and text each other and do FaceTime and whatever else we're doing during this pandemic and have some in-person meetings as well, finally. And I'm, I'm really proud that he has that community. I, I have to say that... The trans youth that I have met who have undertaken this journey towards authenticity are some of the most genuine, interesting, brave young people that I have ever met and really proud to call them family. As you mentioned earlier, Jacob's older sibling also is an advocate and they went viral in their own right. There's a video from a few years ago when they were eight or so, I believe, and they take the podium of Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey and they challenged then President Donald Trump to meet them so they could, and this is a quote, talk to him so hard because it's not fair for people to be scared 
to all transgender people and to any of you out here who disagree, I want you to listen to me and I want you to know that you shouldn't make people feel scared just because you're bigger or have more power, unquote. So on a scale from one to a zillion, what is your level of nachas, pride in your children, for this level of sibling solidarity and advocacy? Pretty much a zillion and one or infinity and beyond. That was a really proud moment. You know what? It was You missed part of the quote. They said, I will talk to him so hard that the wall will fall down. His wall oh my goodness. I missed that part. <laughs> That's and the best part. By the way, this was completely ad-libbed. The way they held that podium, they were there to say something. It was amazing. <laughs> yes, it was completely ad-libbed. They were not slated to be a speaker that day. It's interesting because afterwards, there were some conservative media bloggers and stuff who picked this up and said, how dare Attorney General Maura Healy use an eight-year-old child to, to politicize an issue? And I was like, are you kidding? So this is what actually happened. There was a bunch of advocates slated to speak. Attorney General Healy spoke. We were shutting it all down and the press were putting away their cameras and Eli went up to Mora and tugged on the skirt, her skirt and said, can I say something? And to her credit, Maura Healy said, yes, of course, and lifted Eli up to the podium, gave them the mic, and then they off the cuff delivered this speech. And I was sitting there, I have to say the first few moments, my heart was in my boots because I didn't know this is an eight-year-old kid. I didn't know if the speech was going to be laced with the word poop or anything like that. And so I'm sitting there in, in this incredible pride and horror at the same time that my kid has a microphone because the press had taken their mics back out and everyone was focused on Eli. And and I cannot, I could not believe what I was hearing, the kind of steady forceful, to the point plea for understanding and equality for their younger sibling. And it was it was absolutely beautiful. And I will never forget that moment. And apparently neither will Maura Healy because <laughs> he, um, she talks about it when she goes to, uh, to talk to, to different audiences about rights and stuff like that. She will bring Eli up. And I couldn't be more proud. Your children are outstanding. Your parenting is outstanding. I just have to say this. I'm a parent and I want to drop my kids off at your house for like um, the summer and have them come back as better people. No, they're good people. They're good people. I have to be honest though. I struggle just like everybody else. My kids are now older. They're going into their tween phase. Oh, um, God help us you all. You know, some people hate me. It just, it happens to everybody out there. So thank you very much. I mess up in a thousand ways, just like every other parent every day, but I want to get this right because it's important. You wrote the boston.com letter to Jacob because there was a lack of information out there for families who had a child who's questioning their gender identity, and you wanted to put something positive out there for families to find. Since then, what have you heard from other families going through these situations? And by the way, I have a family who lives very close to me, and I said, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. They have a child who is transitioning, and I'm like, this book is such an amazing, it, it's a guide, it's a story, and it, it just, it's incredible. So I'm curious what you've heard from other families, because I immediately thought of the families in my circle who need to hear from you. Thank you. Um, so I've heard a lot from families over the time since we began advocating 
a lot of them are looking for supportive communities. So I can direct them to a local PFLAG chapter, which is an organization, a national organization chapters all across the US that has supportive groups. Before COVID, they were all meeting in person. Now I'm sure they're online, but they can direct parents to resources and and help them find trainings for teachers and schools. And so they look for resources. They look for, for connection because this can feel like a lonely journey if you don't have other friends and family who've gone through it. They look for advice and how to approach conversations with parents, uh, grandparents, and family members who might not be supportive. They look for ways to help. They ask me all the time, how can I make a difference? How can I advocate for my kid? And sometimes they're looking for help finding affirmative medical care as well, especially if we're talking about an older child who wishes to medically transition, which is the standard of care according to the American Medical Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, and others to allow them to uh, become whole and to feel comfortable in their bodies. And so I find parents who are saying, I'm not sure if my insurance will cover this. Where can I find a good doctor? It's, it's been wonderful because I don't close my door to any parent who comes and, and wants um, wants a connection or wants some help. And sometimes I pass it on, you know, if, if it's a parent in Arizona or it's a parent in, in Missouri, I'll pass it on to an advocate friend there and hope that they can be connected to, to local groups. What I hear a lot is the kind of joy that young people can experience when they are allowed to transition and they are supported. We have a word for it in the community. It's called gender euphoria. Oh, that's so interesting. I love it. Gender euphoria. It's the opposite of dysphoria, which is what young people can sometimes experience pre-transition or without the appropriate medical care. Or sometimes even despite all the support, they can feel a sense of disconnect with their bodies based on their gender identity. I hear a lot about the gender euphoria, um, the experience of both for the young person and for the family to see them blossom and be joyful and find wholeness in their identity that they didn't have before. That's what we experienced with Jacob when he transitioned um, at the age of four. And that's something that a parent who's nervous before this journey and wondering if they're doing the right thing, allowing their child to transition, and what if it's a stage, most frequently it is not. When they get to that point of gender euphoria, it is a beautiful thing to witness. So you mentioned Trump, Missouri, and conservatism. And, you know, I think we have to talk about this. Now we have hives. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> Triggering words. Well, I know. Right. These are difficult things that we got to get into them and it's awful, but it, it just seems like transgender rights have become a cause for yeah. the right. And it's become extremely partisan. And you mentioned, you mentioned Missouri and parents there. God help them. There are more than a hundred bills that seek to curtail rights of trans people, most of them targeting children. In Missouri, Tennessee, and Texas alone, there are more than 30 bills, including regulating school sports, locker rooms, Mm -hmm. and restroom access. What are some of the key issues transgender and non-binary children and their families are facing across the country, and even here in Massachusetts, which I didn't name, but we obviously are not immune to what's going on in the world? Absolutely. And we have our own groups here that have been uh, consistently trying and failing to to take away trans people's rights with the referendum, for example. So 
there's two main categories of these anti-trans bills that are targeting youth specifically. And it's very important to be clear where this legislation is coming from. It's coming from national organizations, conservative organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Liberty Council. These are the same folks who have been trying for years to curtail abortion rights, to make sure that gay people can't get married. So so all these causes, they are unifying for the base, so to speak. And when they failed with gay marriage, with the DOMA and, and the death of DOMA, the new cause celeb for them became transgender people. And w- when you have to fight to take away people's rights, the first thing that you do is you you foment fear and confusion. And so the first stage of these attacks back in the early 2010s was bathroom bills, so-called bathroom bills. Transgender people should not have rights to, should not be considered uh, a protected class who is discriminated against, which is ridiculous because they are probably one of the most discriminated classes in, in the United States. They shouldn't be included in any in any civil rights, anti-discrimination bills, because if we give them their rights, trans women will be using the facilities that cisgender women, which is not transgender women, use, and somehow the world will fall apart and there will be crime and and terrible things will happen without any evidence, without any, hardly an iota of anything to grasp at that has actually happened, that has been unsavory or wrong or illegal. And so this was damaging, incredibly damaging to transgender people during the, this last decade or two. And now they, the especially with HB2 in North Carolina and the pushback against the bathroom bill there, there is now, there is now a new focus and the target is transgender youth. And the fear that is being fomented is twofold. First of all, our opponents are saying they're, God forbid, and I hate to say this, it's just, I don't even want the words to come out of my mouth, but they're mentally ill, our opponents say, and they need to be treated, not affirmed, not supported and validated in their identity, which clearly leads to statistically positive results and reduction in all kinds of mental health issues and and supported by all the major medical organizations in the United States, but, and abroad, but we need to make sure they don't have access to medical care because medical care in in Texas, this is one of the horrible bills that, that has been proposed. Medical care for them would be child abuse because they aren't really transgender and we're messing around with these kids' bodies. And the focus has been on the bodies and how we're ruining children's bodies and think of the children and fear that you shouldn't support your child. You shouldn't take your child to a gender affirming doctor because, you know, uh, what if they change their mind? What if it's really just some underlying mental health issue? And again, against all evidence, again, this is not scientifically based. This is not true. But this is the fear that is being fomented. So we have this entire panoply of anti-trans medicalization bills. And that's to prevent doctors and clinics and behavioral health specialists from supporting transgender youth by providing them the affirmative care that is the standard of care in the United States for them. So to prevent doctors from giving children the care that they need. That's one um, type of anti-trans bill that we're seeing now in a lot of conservative states. And then the other one is an anti-trans sports bill, a series of sports bills. And that's to prevent transgender girls to play with their teammates in school sports and to participate in sports. And the harm in this is that it is actually based on false premises, 
of um, superiority for trans girls in sports, which is just not true. But first and foremost, it's to segregate trans girls, to make it difficult for them to participate in an important part of developmental experiences, which is youth sports. If you can think of your kids or a friend's kids, the reason they join soccer teams in school, the reason they do track, the reason they join cheerleading is for camaraderie. It's for building sports skills. It's for exercise and health. It's to be part of a team and to learn how to be part of a team. That is, any coach will tell you that is 90% of what or 99% of the why schools offer sports. And to exclude somebody from all that says you are not worthy, you do not belong. But the false premise that is given is that somehow trans girls are going to dominate whatever sport they're in because biologically they might have advantages. It turns out that's actually not the case because if you look at the low number of trans girls who actually participate in sports because they have a lot else on their plate and frequently face discrimination in school. So they don't have uh, that sense of belonging and wanting to join sports. But if you look at the low number of trans girls who are in competitive sports in high school and in elementary school, they're not dominating their field. There's just, you can't even name one in this country who has won a scholarship based on a sport. There's very few of one competitions. And in fact, I want to point to the case in Connecticut that's made the headlines recently that two cisgender girls, not transgender girls, and their families, backed by Alliance Defending Freedom, of course, brought a lawsuit against their transgender teammates on a track team. What the hell? Right? And then they went on to lose the initial lawsuit, or it was it was thrown out. And two weeks later, the cisgender girls placed in their competition much higher than their transgender peers. And that's not And that is not atypical. There's a lot that goes into excelling in sports that has nothing to do with levels of testosterone or whatever in your body. It has to do with practice. It has to do with particular body types. Some people are favored in different sports. A transgender gymnast might have more difficulty, but might have an easier time in basketball. But that is the case for cisgender girls as well. So excluding trans girls is not based on the science. It is not based on fact. It is just the next iteration of this fear mongering that is happening from a base that is trying to find a cause. Right. And you you know, you have to wonder, is a state legislature really concerned with the outcome of a track meet? I doubt it. Yeah. They don't give a shit. They don't care. Not only do they not give a shit, but if you look at the states that are trying to pass these bills, they don't fund women's sports. Nope. Nope. (laughs) That's the point. Oh, my gosh. This is the point that I'm always like, what is wrong with all of you? You are like, oh, protect women's sports. But you don't really care at all about women's sports because you didn't until now, until this issue. Take a look at reproductive rights in those states. Take a look at access to birth control. Take a look at these things that take a look at paid leave. Okay. Family leave. Take a look at all those things that actually affect women. Yeah, none of this is pro women. It is anti-trans. It is. It is so cynical because it's. I doubt that half of the people bringing more than half of the people bringing these bills actually believe that they're doing the right thing. It's about finding a cause. It's about fomenting fear. It's about being relevant in a 
increasingly irrelevant social agenda. So I want to get into your book, What We Will Become, because as we mentioned earlier, this book had such a profound impact on, on both Dan and myself. And I know so many other people who have read it who are not on this podcast have been positively affected by it. In this, you alternate between telling your personal story of growing up and then leaving ultra-Orthodoxy, and then you alternate these chapters with chapters about Jacob's story of self-discovery. And I was absolutely staggered when I read this because there are so many parallels between your experience as a formerly uh, Orthodox Jew and my own, I'm not just talking about our names being the same, Miriam. You are the daughter of a Baalat Teshuvah mom, a, a mom who was not Orthodox initially, but became Orthodox. I am too. You attended a Lubavitch school here in Massachusetts. I did too. You love Judaism. You were truly devout and, and committed to Judaism in a true way. But you eventually had to go off the derech, that's off the path of observant Judaism, because that path was a preset path that assigned to you certain roles because of gender. And there were so many specific moments that you describe about your alienation, which were the same as mine. And I'm frankly confident that they're the same as so many other people who have left orthodoxy for gender-related reasons. But for example, there's that morning prayer you mentioned that men say, every morning, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. Oh, thank God. The struggles with you're yeah. right. <laughs> uh, the struggles with your your mom resonated with me in a very similar way. Even the post-Orthodoxy interest and love of martial arts and reclaiming mm -hmm. one's physical body happened to me too. It's it's kind of um I got I got chills. I really did. So how did you come to the decision that it was integral for book readers to understand your and Jacob's stories as these puzzle pieces that fit together? And what was it like to revisit that past history? I cannot imagine that it was easy. Two very profound questions. At the time when I began writing the book, and I think this is still the case largely, there's a, a whole segment of society that comes from a strong faith background, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and feel that they can't have their faith and support transgender people. Because the foundational texts of many of our faiths either hint at or speak about people who break out of gender as a negative thing. It is a very big, it is a very big question about whether the texts actually say that. Yes. Check the show notes after this because I'm going to include a great resource actually from Keshet all about gender fluidity in Jewish texts. Ask about the six genders in the Talmud. Go Google it. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up because I think that a more profound reading and a more open-minded reading of foundational texts and this work is being done now by, by scholars and it, it's something that I'm actually interested in doing one day. It felt to me like I was hearing some of the same messages that my son was hearing, that I was hearing from society, that God created you, designed, you were designed, the word design is so important in this context, designed to play a role, a function, be a certain person. And in, in my son's case, he was the, the opinion that he was designed to be a girl. So therefore, missing the point that ought to be deeply spiritual, but narrowing our lives, the scope of our lives and our purpose. And in Judaism, the word tachlit, tachlis, purpose is so important to 
the way we were physically designed is so profoundly sad um, in a lot of the more fundamental communities, I think, that that are out there, including the one that I was raised in. And I was told that I was designed to, to be a support, to be a helpmate, to be to accept the rulership, literally, of a husband one day, and to have a kind of benign patriarchal relationship. It's very odd. Like we were told that the Talmud or the Mishnah said that um, as God is, or perhaps this was rabbinical literature, and I forgive me that I can't find the exact where it was said, but the way that God is to man as benevolent and patriarchal, but in charge, that was the way man was meant to be to woman. That's the way women was meant to be to the child. And that was the relationship. No one can see my expression right now, but I'm having a lot of expressions. You're like, this is... (laughs) You're in a full body eye roll. Yes. (laughs) If you rolled your eyes any farther back, they would like (laughs) flip in the back of your head. Yep. Um, Yep. Yeah. This was so painful to me. I wanted to be equal and I wasn't in this community. And there were so many excuses given to fulfilling this role makes is what makes you a greater person. If you deviate from this role, you're throwing away your chance to make be as God made you. And don't worry because you will reap the same reward in the world to come. And I was like, I don't want that reward. And that's where I brought in the chapter about the the heretic from the Talmud who has always um, just rung a bell in my heart for what I've been experiencing, what I had experienced. And for me, one of the main pains was, and one of the things that I wasn't allowed to do because of gender was to focus on my biblical studies. And so the irony of that, that, that learning Torah the way the men did as a purpose, as a, as, a, as a primary purpose, was considered past a certain age. I, I wasn't supposed to do that because I was supposed to focus on my husband's needs and the family. And so this was incredibly painful, this, this dissonance of, of knowing or believing that God had created me to fulfill a certain role, being unhappy in the role, and therefore being unhappy with myself. And that became untenable at some point. And I had to leave to save myself, not because I stopped believing that it, at that moment that the rabbis in my community were right about the way they felt about women and the, even Maimonides and all the canonical rabbinical literature, it is very misogynistic if you look at it. Rambam, Maimonides also suggested putting salt on your babies after you birth them. So, you know, we can take what he said with a grain of salt. Exactly, a grain of salt. But it was canon. It was gospel back in the day for me. And so I took myself out and that was painful. I felt like I was wrong. There was something wrong with me. And then when my son came to me and said, why did God make me this way? He said, why is he stupid? Uh, Why did he make me this way? I could see that he felt that he was wrong, that there was something wrong with him, that he was made wrong. And that pain that I saw in him, that withdrawal, that shame that, you know, I, I talk about, it felt like he was shutting down, like there was a shutter that was closed over his face, that something's wrong with me. I keenly identified with that experience. I'm not transgender. I've always felt comfortable. I haven't felt comfortable with the assigned roles of my gender, but I've always felt comfortable as a woman and in fact, really proud and happy to be a woman and increasingly more so as I grow older. But I knew that pain and I could not put my child through it. So in many ways, this leap of faith that I took back in 2014 and that my husband took at a time when there wasn't 
the kind of support and protocols for young transgender children. That came from my belief in one thing above all, that I could not allow my child to live in this state and to go into that dark place that I had gone into before I finally extricated myself. I needed to give him the opportunity to live holy and to to not follow those um, binary and rigid assumptions that society held about who he was meant to be because he was born with certain reproductive organs. You know, what's so interesting to me is how pervasive the thinking still is for me. You know, even though I've been an atheist and not a not an Orthodox Jew since my very early 20s, I still have been so conditioned during that time. So for example, I mean, this is ridiculous. I was outside with my uncle who I live with and we were outside the house and we were looking at it and we're like, yeah, we want to need to fix the gutters, blah, blah, blah. And I was about to say, well, the beauty of the of the king's daughter is inside the palace. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh my God. So what that means, that's a it's actually from Tehillim. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So this has been used to say, oh, women should be inside. Keep everything that's beautiful about you. Keep it inside. Don't venture yeah. forth. It doesn't matter. The external just just inside quietly in your little box. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's that was the first thing that jumped to my mind when I'm talking about the gutters. Yeah. It's so yeah. pervasive. So like I messaged Dan like 10 or so times as I, I read your sections of the book. And sometimes I, I just started crying, not only because of the pain that came through your writing about your experience, but because I could see my own pain better through the prism of your own. And um, and yet at the same time, there is so much beauty and wisdom to be gleaned from our Jewish traditions, far more than sometimes we are led to believe, like we just mentioned about the gender fluidity that is part of our ancient um, texts and heritage. There's so much there, so much about identity, about the power of transitional states of being in Judaism, of respect and love for our fellow humans, treating others how we wish to be treated. It's almost hard to reconcile these things. So towards the end of the book, you have this moment where for the first time in a really long time, you you open a Torah because you're looking for an answer to a very specific question about Jacob. And for anybody who you know is re- religious Jewishly, or I'm sure with any other faith tradition, you open you open the book and you sort of randomly say, oh, "I need an answer. Open it. Show me." And you're hoping God will show you the answer through through looking at the text of the book. And that was a really powerful moment for me to read. Can you tell us about that moment, what it meant for you and Jacob, and what your relationship? to Judaism is now. Yeah. So one of the painful things when I left was that I never truly stopped believing in, in anything. And so living in a, in a dissonant way with what my heart felt was beautiful. And, and I was, I was, it was grafted into my nature. Like you say, Miriam, these things will pop up in moments to you. And they carry a beauty, the the allegories of the Mishnah, the uh, incredible wrangling over the detail of the words. I love that. There are people who leave Orthodoxy and they don't, they say, oh, this was all ridiculous and I don't believe in any of this. The word believe is funny because I don't know if I believe in, in all the injunctions of the Torah. I don't really. I mean, I don't practice, but I believe that there is so much value in these ancient traditions, but they need to be reinterpreted in every generation. And it's when we close it off, the, the gates of interpretation, and this has actually happened in different parts of Jewish history. It's very in, true. In, 
in Islam, in, in Christianity, there have been moments where we have said anything that someone has said beforehand is canon. And then afterwards, it has less value. And of course, women have entirely been left out of the in interpretive powers that men have had in our community, in the Orthodox community. For me, this moment of helplessness came when Jacob had chosen his name, and it was Jacob. And it wasn't a name that he had discussed before. It wasn't one of the constant revolving door of different boy names that he was trying on for size before the transition. At the moment of transition, he says, I want to be a boy always, a boy named Jacob. Jacob, what a male name. What a biblical <laughs> male name. <laughs> there is no wiggle room with the name Jacob. And in my heart, I mean, I was taking a leap of faith for him to allow him to transition so young when there wasn't a lot of literature about it and there wasn't a lot of guidance. And I had this moment that is probably could be called cold feet where I said, well, just what if, what if he changes his mind and we're going with Jacob? And then, you know, six months from now, he says, you know what? I really do feel like I'm a girl again. And, and then we're stuck with the name Jacob or we have to somehow go back. I wish that he had picked a name that at least for me felt a little bit more unisex. And so the name that I thought of that I thought, oh gosh, if I could get him to re-choose this name or shift to this name, I think I'd feel more comfortable uh, was Jonah. Because Yonah in Hebrew is, is frequently a feminine name, but Jonah in English and in, in America it is, a, is a male name. So I felt like this is a name that would be perfect because it could kind of straddle both worlds. And it represented the fact that I wasn't ready to take that leap, even though I thought I had been, you know, and he didn't, he wasn't happy with that recommendation. For the first time since the transition, when he was so joyful, I saw a look of doubt in his face too. And it was painful for me to see that. Like, does mom really believe me? Or what is she, why is she trying to make me? I was so happy with the name Jacob. This is my name. I chose it. Why does she want different? What's wrong? And so this is something that I've done very few times in my life, but it has always rendered really remarkable results. I decided to look in the Torah and just say, God, if there is a message, if you are here, just tell me, give me some message that we're on the right path with the name Jacob. And of course, with the fact that we are allowing a complete and total transition with no wig over, <laughs> except of course he could have always changed his mind, but um, it just felt like Jacob was just just all male, red-blooded male. And I went up to the attic where I had kind of shelved all of my Judaica and found this little um, Tanakh, the, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the, the prophets, the Ketuvim, the Hagiographa. And it's like about a thousand pages long. It's like really long and tiny, you know, tiny, tiny lettering. And I sat up there and I just closed my eyes and I flipped through it several times and I opened up to a page and I put my finger down. And what I landed on was the, the part in Genesis where Isaac, who is growing old and his eyes are failing him, has invited his sons to give them the blessing. And he invited his older son, Esau, to come into the tent and bring him game so that he may bless him, so that he may give him the birthright. And it is Jacob, the younger son. Who comes with the game, with the, you know, with the deer that he has hunted. And Isaac says to him, why have you brought this so quickly to me, my son? He said, God has, has brought it before me. And I'm, I'm not remembering the exact words, but 
Jacob answered. And then it goes into the very famous section where it talks, well, the hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. I mean, can you ask for a more clear message that my doubt was, is this too quick? And Jacob says to his father, who is blind, blinded by the convention that he has to give his older son the blessing, but not understanding his younger son's goodness, perhaps, or who his younger son really is. He questions, is this too soon? And Jacob says, no, it's not too soon. God has brought this to me. God has brought the game to me. That's why I'm so quick in bringing it to you. And then what the the hands are the hands of Esau, the hand represents the body, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. And the voice is spirit and the soul and the mind. It felt to me a direct message from above that my son was who he was meant to be. And he has been brought to me by God. And understanding that, I it was like it shattered this entire narrative that I'd been holding since I left my Orthodox community, since I left Gateshead, England, which is where I was. I thought that I had been abandoned. I thought that I had taken myself outside of the circle of God's grace. I felt like a heretic. I felt like he had not accompanied me on this journey. But in fact, he'd been there all along and he had given me a son who could never have survived in the community I grew up in. He would have been forced to to live in an identity that was not right for him. And yet he was given to me and he's able to thrive because I left. So leaving was meant to be. Ugh, and from- I'm so emotional right now. Like I cried in this section of the book and I'm just so emotional. <laughs> I I actually still cry when I read read these parts of the book because I can put myself back in the, those moments instantaneously. But it was such a revelation to me and I felt like such a redemption that none of this had been a waste, my going through all this, my leaving, that it had been meant to be, and that perhaps my understanding of God had been limited, that I had assigned to him what I had been taught growing up was his expectations or his wants or his desires of humanity. Maybe this wasn't true. Maybe we are all meant to become something different than what we were born into. Not always a journey of gender, but a journey of fulfillment that will take us far from the tree in which we were planted. Maybe we are meant to spread our wings and become something different throughout our lives, whether it's leaving a geographical location, leaving a a family trauma behind, leaving the understanding of the world that is limited of some of our ancestors. So it, it was just a profound moment. I, I almost felt like it reversed. It was like a Nahapohu, uh, that, that line from the Megillah from Purim and Esther. Yeah. Everything was turned on its head. And, um, and since that day, I have felt so much closer to my Judaism, to God. And I have seen and learned through my advocacy that there are Jewish communities out there doing the most incredible work to increase inclusivity in the world, to increase equality, to fix anything that is broken, tikkun olam. And they're so different than the community I grew up in, which I still find a lot of value in, but I wish they didn't limit human potential based on thousands of years of of trying to survive in difficult situations, but creating the guardrails around the Torah that they did. And that's an actual fence around the Torah. The fence around the real thing, people. It became the fence around us. Uh, Whether we're women or or we're LGBTQ Jewish people, 
we need to explore the human spirit and what Salem Elohim means in a different way. And as we learn more, we are expected to grow more. And I love the sayings that, that propel so many Jews to engage in social justice, that we don't stand by our brother's blood, that we, the Hillel Hazake, the elder Hillel, who said, Im mili mili. if I am not for myself, if I do not advocate for myself, uh, then who will advocate for me? But if I'm only for myself, then what am I? Right? I can't only be for myself. I need to work for others. And if not now, then when? And that has been a guiding mantra for me. And I love being able to reclaim my Judaism and maybe one day go back and study those texts and see in them the value, but raise them up to a place where they can be relevant to everyone today. In the epilogue of your book, you talk about grieving for the child you refer to as M. And just so everyone knows, that is not really Jacob's dead name. That is just the name that you use to describe who he was before. M was brave enough to be, quote, the oracle and the road and set their own derech, their own path in a way to becoming Jacob and then showed it to you. I have a young person very dear to me who I will see for the first time post-pandemic at the end of this month. And during that time, he came out as trans. I am so excited to meet this person as his authentic self. And I'm also a little bit nervous. I want to do absolutely right by him in every single way. What is your advice to reconcile the image that I had of this person before to now? Yeah, that's a really profound question. I think there's a term for what parents and people who are close to transitioning folks might be experiencing, and that's called ambiguous grief, because we do feel rightly that we shouldn't be grieving something that is a celebration, something worthy of celebration. The person is coming into their own. They are becoming authentic. They are shedding a skin that didn't fit and that was painful. And it would be painful for us to demonstrate that to them. And so for parents, I would always caution not to share your ambiguous grief with the young person in your life because they want to see this moment of when they step into their true self that they feel they have always been but have had to hide from people as a moment of celebration, because they need that support at that moment, and they will need it continuing going forward. But the feelings are complicated, Miriam. And I think denying that, especially for parents, can be unhealthy. Because we, you know, we are the sum of our thoughts. Uh, We are our experience of the world. And my experience of the world until my child was four was that I had a child named Em. And again, that's a pseudonym. So M existed in my mind. And when M transitioned to Jacob, I was blessed to experience his joy. And his joy helped me through this period. And I'm hoping it will help you when you see this young person. But that doesn't mean that M was not still a part of my mind, my thoughts, and my memories. And you can't erase that. And so what I did is I created a place in my heart and in my mind where I appreciated the struggle that this person, M, 
who was really Jacob inside, but I didn't know it, went through to be authentic, to tell me who they were, to insist and persist and to keep at it until I listened. And that's why I use this line, M was the oracle, M was the path, M was the brave little quote unquote girl who, who wouldn't take no for an answer. But Jacob is real and he's in my arms every day. Well, lately he's not because he's 11 and, um, you know, decided that I'm no, not cool anymore. <laughs> and that's another painful stage, in it, but that's pretty normal. Everyone goes through it. There's a place in my heart for him. And, and I know, and I, 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 I say this very clearly. I know M was a fiction or figment of my imagination, but my imagination is who I am. My, my reality is my thoughts. And so I am so proud of that person who had to struggle to shed the old skin, to become the Phoenix, to rise from the ashes, to be the great person that he is today. And I, and I love Jacob and his, his joys as every day goes on, leads me further away from those natural twinges of missing something. And at this point, I mean, he has been Jacob more than he has not. Right. I mean, he's been Jacob in the entire 11 years of his life. But to me, it was since he was four and now he's 11, seven years. And I couldn't imagine him any differently. And so I think time, time heals ambiguous grief. It's also important I'm actually quoting another, a wonderful advocate named Lizette who lives in Arizona. And she gave me this way of phrasing it. You have to be careful that these natural feelings don't prevent you from fully supporting your child. And if they do, then at some point you're transitioning from, you know, giving yourself a break to actual bias. And so that's really important. And I think it's important for parents to educate themselves about what it means to be trans to to be very careful to not display this ambiguous grief and make the young person feel that this that they're becoming themselves was somehow a tragedy because that can be a very damaging message with parents there is a place to have and other discussions with parents is a wonderful is a wonderful outlet for this ambiguous grief where the person is here the person is real the person is better off than they ever were before and yet you hold this ambiguous grief. And so sometimes we feel like we don't have a right to mourn that, but I think we do. Because this message is to parents, honestly, because I know you've got this, because I think this is something that comes up a lot in parent groups. And there's this argument of, well, you can't grieve this. That's wrong. It's transphobia to grieve. But the truth is that parents, our experience of our children is real. And we, but we need to, to be actively looking to move to that next stage and, and be happy with the amazing child we have. Yes. You know, your your book, your journey, Jacob's journey, your family's journey, it, it is a to me it's a call to action. I listen to you and and I feel like I'm not I'm not doing enough and I and I want to do more. And I'm wondering what we can do to promote equality and protect rights and for trans and non-binary people and, and what are your suggestions, maybe top three suggestions for people in our community who who will listen to this and I don't know how you could not want to do something after listening to you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. That is the million dollar question. And I'm just happy that you asked it. We need all the allies we can get. This fight is far from over. As we discussed, there are anti-trans bills uh, across the country. Some of them are passing. We need to mobilize and activate our friends and families in states 
where voting for legislators will impact transgender youth and their rights, transgender people, their families in general. So we have to we have to let folks know what's at stake. So sharing about these bills, talking about myth versus reality when you are confronted with the you know, the message that trans people are dangerous or trans youth should not access healthcare or they shouldn't be in sports, rather than letting people lie in their lack of understanding and allowing the situation to persist, sharing uh, things like the ACLU has Mythbuster, like the four Mythbusters, I think, or something about trans youth in sports. There, there are uh, resources out there that we can promote to make sure that the message gets across. And it's working. It's it's working there. Polling has shown that we can shift the needle on these issues the more we educate and the more we share positive resources and, and scientific resources. In addition, I think that the Equality Act is probably the biggest opportunity we have coming up to make a change in legislation so that every state has the same non-discrimination measures for trans people in housing, healthcare, employment, every every mode and, and area of life. The Equality Act has passed the House. It is going to sit in Mitch McConnell's graveyard unless we have voices in every state pushing legislators to bring this bill to the floor and just and to vote yes on the Equality Act. So that's really important. I think it's also very important, and this is something that everyone can do today. You can make sure that your local public schools and your schools, public, private school, whatever it is, are set up to support all LGBTQ youth by having specific non-discrimination policies in their school policies for gender identity and sexual orientation, that they have inclusive sex ed, that they have inclusive and representational materials in the classroom from a young age, because again, gender identity starts to form between two to four years old, and you are going to have kids in preschool who are questioning their gender identity and need to see representation of themselves so that they feel normal. Trainings for teachers, ask for school if they've had them. Safe School of Massachusetts is an incredible program. I, I think it's one of the best. Uh, we're very lucky it's funded by the state. Jeff Parati, my hero, is, is the CEO of uh, Safe Schools, the director, executive director, and he has gone into so many schools across the state and will continue to do so to help support all LGBTQ youth. But we need to start with the education system. And that is something you can bring books over today. You can bring, it's Pride Month. Yay. Yes. You can bring pride flags. And this is what I did in, in, in the schools in my town. I went and I ordered a bunch of progressive pride flags. That's the one with the, the black and brown stripe and the trans colors as well. And I'm delivering them to my local schools because it's Pride Month. And, you know, I can say for my children, when they walk by a house or they see a business with a pride flag, they feel supported. They feel seen. They get excited. And we need to make it the norm that we support 365 days a year, support our trans youth in our communities, in our faith, the houses of faith, worship and faith. We need to be asking these questions of our superintendents, of our school administrators, of our rabbis. What are we doing to support our community, our LGBTQ plus community? Do that today. It's incredibly important. Thank you. Thank you for that. 
So one of one of the words we haven't heard that much of today, because a lot of it has been about advocating, but advocating leads to something, and it leads to belonging. And I, I, I think mm-hmm. in my mind, a, a community in which everyone feels welcome, valued, and belongs it should be the goal anywhere in the world, everywhere in the world, in a Jewish community, in your town, in greater Boston. What does true belonging look like? Because once everyone belongs, you're no longer having to advocate for someone's humanity. You're just simply raising a child like you know, a, a lot of yeah. people have are, are doing um, without having to, to think that I, I must constantly advocate because people are pushing back against their humanity. What is, what yes. is belonging to you? I think you answered the question. It's, it's not having your humanity questioned, not having a value judgment placed on you because of who you are, whether it's your, your immigration status or your race or your religion or your gender identity or your sexual orientation, for that not to be the thing at which people make decisions about who you are and your value in society. I think that's genuine belonging is not having to walk into a room and scan it like so many people do not having to protect yourself and to think about safety. Am I safe here? Am I safe in this community? Am I safe in this neighborhood? Am I safe going to this school? Am I safe taking a trip out of state? This, these are considerations that our black and brown community has thought about for a long time. And now that more trans people are coming out of the closet and transitioning, our trans community thinks about that too. Where am I safe? And they are scanning for safety. And I want a day when they don't have to do that. Uh, when my son doesn't have to try to figure out if his new friend is is going to support his identity and whether he needs to come out, not having to come out. That's what belonging means. Thank you. Ah, Mimi, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe and sharing your incredibly powerful story with us. I don't believe I've cried on an episode like this before. <laughs> Dan can confirm. Confirmed, confirmed. Thank you so <laughs> so much for the book. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for modeling this way of being with your family. And thank you for talking to us about it. Thank you so much, Miriam and Dan. This was a a wonderful conversation. And I'm very touched by the fact that you were both touched by different aspects of the book. And and Miriam, we'll have to continue this conversation. Oh boy, do we! At some point, um, I would love to talk uh, to talk about our, our similar experiences. Um, I really appreciate this. I really appreciate you having me on, and thank you. You're making a change. You're part of this change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Mimi LeMay for joining us, and thank you to everyone out there for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review the Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Happy Pride Month, everybody.